We're going to begin with our Conversations with Remarkable Minds series. Today, we're going to be talking with Bill McKibben. Now, many of you know Bill McKibben. He's one of the nation's best-known environmental activists and authors. In fact, he was the one who wrote The End of Nature back in 1989, which first alerted the American public to global warming. Since then, he's written many books and articles for leading magazines on this subject. He also talks about humanity's relationship to nature, alternative energy, the dangers of genetic engineering, and the ecology and how we relate to it. Earlier this year, Bill founded Step It Up, a national grassroots movement to demand that Congress reduce carbon emissions. And Step It Up has been described as the nation's largest climate change protest movement to date. He has a new book. It's called Deep Economy, The Wealth of Communities and the Durable Future. He presently lives on a farm upstate uh, with his family, and it originally the land was owned by Robert Frost. Nice to have you with us today, Bill. It's very good to be with you, Gary. Bill, we're going to take a few minutes to go in-depth. as um, I want to give some context to this discussion because I see converging uh, elements today that I have not seen at any time in my life. And being an environmentalist and being involved in this movement and a health educator, I'm looking at what could be an opportunity. Unfortunately, in the United States, we rarely change or address problems proactively and preventatively. We wait till we have been smacked down through some crisis, whether it's a heart attack or a stroke or cancer, or whether we're, we go bankrupt. Or one day we wake up and see that, gee whiz, we don't have any water. The water we have is polluted. Or why is there a fire raging all around me if I live in the woods? Or what about that earthquake out in you know, California? Or a tornado in Kansas? or Oklahoma, or North Texas, or flooding in at least 300 different cities in the United States in the last year, or hailstone the size of golf balls in Texas. We don't even begin to pay attention to things like the fact that more ice melted in the North Atlantic than twice the size of the United States just this year. Mm-hmm. That's just in one area. Our health is going downhill. We have, we have a critical crisis in healthcare, and nothing that anyone is doing about it right now will change it. So spending more money, having more doctors, more medications, will do zero to reverse that. On the other side of it, we have Wall Street that has postured itself as being interested in our future. So people dutifully look at the numbers on Wall Street, the NASDAQ, the S&P, and the Dow. And if the Dow goes up, if the NASDAQ go up, we gee whiz, this is good. Surely it's good. I say, why do you think it's good? So my introduction to your topic is going to be broad-based, but it's all interconnected. So if you would please, I'm going to lay out a few ideas, and I'm going to give a little backup for it. I believe that the environment, our political system, Wall Street, the hedge funds, equity buyouts, uh, the enormous risk of derivatives, the gambles that people make to make enormous fortunes, and the environment are all interconnected. Let me begin by reading a, an article. It's a very brief article from Counterpunch. The current edition is called The Great Financial Crisis by James Petrus. It's only two pages, but it's informative. 
All the major financial analysts claim the ongoing and deepening financial crisis is in large part the result of investor uncertainty. This is because the investment banks and derivatives and hedge funds placed high-risk subprime mortgages and junk bonds along with other more reliable debt paper into packages and sold them to institutional and private bankers who in turn retailed them around the world. The ratings agencies who are paid by the sellers all gave top billing, AA or AAA, to these hybrid securities, mortgages, and junk bonds, encourage investment advisors to push them onto the risk-adverse client looking for higher returns than treasury notes. Most of the investors do not know whose and what paper they are holding or how much their hedge funds are losing or have lost. Those who can have pulled out. The banks are reticent to loan to any applicant. Leverage funds are a dirty word among lenders. Hedge funds are either selling assets to pay loans or not telling what they own or owe. Derivatives have been deflowered. Central banks in the United States, Japan, and European Union have poured and keep pouring $250 billion to the private banks hoping to create liquidity, but the banks won't lend because, as one prominent banker in Palm Springs told me, nobody knows who's got worthless investments in their briefcase. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers are all closing down bankrupt investment funds or trying to prop them up. The Fed props up all the worst speculators in the name of saving the financial system in a way that would would never prop up the failing American health system. The financial system has the the infusions of federal funds and have failed to block the run for cover. Everybody for himself and don't look back is the watchword of lending equity bankers. The Democrats are calling for the usual inconsequential congressional hearings about what went wrong. Congressman Levin and Barney Frank will ask the wrong questions to the wrong people going after the weakest fall guys, the rating agencies for overrating the fraudulent deals, not the dealmakers themselves. The nonsense in the briefcases are big and, and smelly, but no one knows how big. $250 billion or $500 billion. There are a lot of bankers and hedge fund billionaires walking around with invisible clothespins on their noses. Where is Greenspan since he started the whole scam with his low interest? deregulated financial markets. The homely hero of all hedge derivative innovative financial scamsters sanctioned, approved, and promoted the pyramid swindles. He's off advising Deutsche Bank and uh, suckering the international bankers for $100,000 fees for his failed financial recipes. But for those speculators who made a bundle and left, Greenspan is not part of the emerging culture. For them, he is still the financial genius who made their fortunes. So unless the fund directors come clean, empty their briefcases, and open their balance sheets, we won't know who's carrying subprime worthless paper. The great unknowns include the unredeemable bonds, the worthless mortgages, and the illegal, illiquid hedge funds. Without knowledge of the size and scope of this debacle, the great uncertainty has frozen most investments and loans. It is paralyzing the financial system. Even Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac can't come in and buy up these. 
all the financial wizards, the super smart scientific mathematical guaranteed 30% per year investment advisors have less credibility than a street corner con man. The most arrogant, pretentious, scientific speculators have been humbled, especially those oracles who practice what is, co- what is called among the insiders quantitative investment. Quantitative investment, or QI, the use of complex computer modules in making investment decisions, was used and promoted by some of the reputed smartest and highest regarded gurus of Wall Street. For a decade, the complex mathematical model produced extraordinary profits for Renaissance funds, Goldman Sachs, and numerous other asset managements and head funds. With a massive sell-offs of assets to pay debts and the desperate drive for liquidity, all the assumptions of this once smart go-to went out the window. The model cannot account for any crisis which calls into question historical trends. The best and brightest are baffled. At first, the geniuses that came up with this said the crisis was a localized problem for the subprime bottom-dwelling speculators. But as their own funds dropped, they blamed hysterical investors for overreacting. A problem of perception, they psychologized, but their funds continued to decline. The market wasn't acting as their model dictated. Heresy flourished, skeptics surged. So what is the problem, the market or the model? Now, that's by a former professor of sociology at Bingham University. And uh, here is my thoughts on that, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. What Wall Street decides becomes, in effect, a de facto national policy. If Wall Street decides that it can make money off getting a gated community in the middle of the desert, then they will push it in such a way that they make their money up front, and they get out. They make their money on fees, not by building a long-term sustainable culture. That's the current Wall Street. Everything is about making money off money, not by making money off building jobs. They're the ones who have supported the corporations that have outsourced our jobs to China, India, uh, South America, to Haiti. They're the ones who have caused the downsizing of over. 28 million American jobs in the past uh, 30 years. And yet, what is remarkable is that these very same people who are responsible for what becomes green, and they only like green when they can profit from it, they, they despise the counterculture. They have never brought the counterculture, the people with the real ideas like yourself and others, to the table. So the counterculture has survived and even in some cases prospered in spite of Wall Street. But the great oracles of Wall Street were wrong. Right now, I am conservatively guesstimating that there's $1.3 trillion in junk subprime mortgage paper that was originally packaged in bundles at AAA and that was then sold into the market and then leveraged 30 to 1, meaning for every dollar of a subprime mortgage paper that someone was holding as a AAA bond, they loaned out or invested $30 against it. Now, could you imagine? Could you imagine today uh, going to a um, uh, going to a lending company and say, uh, "I have a house worth a hundred thousand dollars, but I want you to give me um, I want you to give me three million dollars." They're going to say, "Well, it's not worth it." Yeah, I know, but that's what you do on Wall Street all the time, every day. Well, that's the truth of it. Wall Street makes its money with smoke and mirrors. It's a Ponzi scheme, 
and the insiders, 10 million, have become millionaires. The rest have become billionaires, almost 975. But for the average person now who has a home who couldn't afford it, they're losing their home. Our governments could step in and say no more foreclosures. It refuses to do so. These same people have created artificial communities, have tried to privatize water, have privatized seeds like um, uh, Terminator seeds for the Africa and the Middle East, even Iraq and here in America. They have sponsored corporations and given them money that create destruction to our environment, to the quality of our life, and even credit card companies. And yet on the other end, and this is my final statement, the integrity of these companies has not been challenged. Bristol-Myers Squibb today paid a fine of $515 million for doctoring kickback scheme, a doctor kickback scheme. Quote, this is from the Boston Globe, Jonathan Salzman. Bristol-Myers Squibb and a subsidiary have agreed to pay more than a half a billion dollars to settle an array of federal and state civil allegations involving their drug marketing and practices. The government alleged that in a three-year period, they paid illegal re, uh, remunerations to physicians and other health care providers to get them to promote be, uh, their, their drugs. Now, we right now know that the largest number of people dying in America each year are dying because of iatrogenesis or medically induced drugs or procedures. 800,000. So on the one hand, we have Wall Street promoting Bristol-Myers. Wall Street promoting the makers of Vioxx. Of Vi- uh, Vioxx. Wall Street promoting the chemotherapy companies that in, in, injure people. Wall Street promotes the investments in the environment. Wall Street then pr- promotes industries that pollute the environment. The American consumer doesn't understand any of this. They don't understand that when they go to see a doctor, the doctor is most likely to give them a drug without any knowledge or understanding of alternative natural approaches or whether or not the drug they're giving them procedure is actually safe or effective. Now we know they've been getting kickbacks, but we've known this all along. So everyone's getting kickbacks. Everyone's on the money train. Integrity is the first victim. Honesty is the second victim. Decency is the third victim. Morality is the fourth victim. And the American consumer is sitting there eating a McDonald's, watching American Idol, drinking tap water, buying bottled water, buying non-biodegradable elements, and then thinking, should I go see an inconvenient truth? That's where we begin our discussion. The forum is yours. Well, and that's a very good um, introduction. You know, we've reached the point where we've reached uh, because we haven't been paying much attention to what we're doing. We've been doing the things that seem easiest and most obvious in our own lives and in our national life. And that period of time is coming to an end. Um, So much of what we've done uh, on Wall Street and on Main Street has been built on the back of cheap fossil fuel. Um, cheap fossil fuel won't survive the onslaught either of peak oil or of taking global warming seriously. And so we're moving in the direction of a new world. And I think that uh, over the long run and even the medium run, what that new world looks like, at least this is the premise of deep economy, is a world where we learn to have somewhat more localized and regionalized economies, where we learn to um, uh, uh, once more start taking care of each other in a way we haven't for quite a while. You know, one of the um, one of the effects of cheap fossil fuel was global warming. Another of the effects was that we became the first people in history 
to have no need of our neighbors, no practical need of them. And that's going to change, I think, and, and, and that change will be difficult and it will also be salutary. Um, that's one of the places where I'm working anyway. That's the long-term, medium-term shift, the short-term shift, the political work that uh, I'm doing at the moment, mostly through this group, stepitup07.org, that you mentioned, is to try and get the policy changes, both nationally and internationally, that we need if we're going to have any hope of slowing down global warming to something that we can even begin to adapt to. And that's going to be, for all the reasons that you mentioned, an extraordinarily hard fight. You know, ExxonMobil made $40 billion in profit last year, more profit than any company in the history of profit. Uh, in our system, that buys a fair number of congressmen to do your bidding. And so it's no easy task to try and, and bring them to heel. I don't believe that we can trust our current political system, either Democrat or Republican, to honor the needs that we will have going forward. Also, by the way, the latest study shows that Americans today have fewer friends and are they're really suffering. They're not happy because we've always assumed that more is better. And That's indeed, the, uh, and and so Americans, every American wants more. We want we want more of everything. So I'd like for you to take a moment, because you and I both know that there was a different culture in the 1950s, 60s, and even 70s, and since then there's been a steady decline in happiness and satisfaction among the American population. But what are the main trigger points during these, let's say, the last 50 years that have contributed sure. to America's really being quite miserable? and deep inside, regardless whether they acknowledge or not, and speak about the relationship between all the polluting and unhealthy items, such as fossil fuels and industrialized food products, that are also destroying our earth and our individual happiness and joy. All right? And by the way, for those listening over the Internet, you can watch today's program. We are streaming our video uh, from the studio here in New York City. Please please continue. Yeah, that's a very good point. Look, every year since the end of World War II, one of the big national polling firms, the National Opinion Research Center, has asked Americans, are you happy with your life? The number of people who answer that they're very happy peaks in 1956 and has gone slowly but steadily downhill since. Only about a quarter of Americans will any longer make that claim, which is very strange considering that that same 50-year period has seen a, a trebling of our material standard of living. I mean, we obviously live in bigger houses than we did in the 1950s. We take more vacations by airplane. You know, we can download any vaguely musical sound emitted anywhere on the planet almost instantly, uh, on and on and on. And yet, it hasn't particularly overjoyed us. And if what we intuitively believed about the economy, if what we were told about the economy all the time by everyone from Alan Greenspan to Bill Clinton was correct, there should be some relationship between more and better. Um, There isn't uh, uh, anymore. And economists in the last few years have demonstrated that past a certain point, maybe about $10,000 per capita income per year, around the world that correlation vanishes. Now, that's extremely uh, it's extremely odd news, and it's also extremely liberating um, to start thinking that way. Uh, one of the things that we need to figure out first is what causes that. And as you say, there are many causes. Uh, if we start thinking about, say, what happened in the 1950s, 
when we began spending large periods of the day, uh, you know, staring into screens and eating processed food and on and on and on. I think probably the single most important contributor to this was the thing that we've spent more of our money on in that 50-year period than anything else, and that's the um, birth and and expansion of the American suburb. That's basically what we've been about for those 50 years. And, you know, we thought it was the American dream, bigger houses, further apart, uh, 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 splendid. But the problem is that it brought us out of contact with each other. Three-quarters of Americans no longer know their next-door neighbor. They may know their name, but they have no relationship. Uh, You know, the average American eats meals with friends and family uh, less than half as often as they did 50 years ago. We have, on average, half as many close friends as we did 50 years ago. Those turn out to be big changes for a socially evolved primate to go through. And it just turns out that we happen to be alive at the moment when they, you know, we passed the tipping point, when when they more than overrode whatever advantage there was to having uh, 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 more stuff. It's no longer a good bargain. It's also getting us in grave ecological trouble. As you mentioned, uh, you know, the only thing that's changed in global warming in the 20 years since I wrote The End of Nature is the, the understanding that it's happening more quickly and on a larger scale than, than we would have thought even two decades ago. Um, so we're in a very serious bind right now. The good news, to the extent that there is good news, is that we can at least sense some of the ways out of it. And I think they lie in the direction of more localized economies. Just to give you uh, one small we, example. Boy, do we, do we agree on that, Bill. I've been telling this audience we've got to get out of the cities and most importantly, we have to get out of the, the suburbs are purgatory. <laughs> the cities are hell. <laughs> Having this in the country. <laughs> well, I, you know, I like the country, and that's where I live, and I like cities, too. It's the suburbs in between that are very, prob- I think, are most problematic. They're very problematic. One of, the, one of the really good trends in all places, though, cities, suburbs, and the country, in the last few years has been the rise of farmers' markets. This is the fastest-growing part of our food economy in this country. Sales are growing 12 to 15% a year. Now, that's good news, as you know, for, for, for ecological reasons. You use a lot less energy uh, 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 bringing food a few miles than you do traveling at 2,000 miles, which is the distance the average bite of food in this country travels before it reaches your gullet. It's good for our physical health uh, for reasons that you're the expert on, and it's good for our mental health as well. A a study a couple of years ago followed some sociologists, followed shoppers, first around the supermarket and then around the farmer's market. Everyone's been to the supermarket one time or another. You walk in, you fall into a light fluorescent trance, you move around the stations of the cross collecting your items, somehow the same ones as the week before, Maybe you have a conversation about paper or plastic bag at the checkout, and that's about it. When they followed shoppers around the farmer's market, they found that they were having 10 times as many conversations per visit. 10 times is pretty, it's an order of magnitude. I mean, this wasn't a different way of getting your calories for the week. It was a different social experience. I have a certified organic farm down in Naples, Florida, and we go to the farmer's market. We have a booth there. My daughter does. 
And um, I'm a big advocate that the future will be when we start to become self-sufficient, learning new skills and crafts, learning to barter, learning to live a more sustainable life. And generally when you move out into the country, wherever it may be, you're going to be around more progressive-minded people. Most of the people living in that environment have also made similar types of choices, and yet they bring the sense of their own individuality and creativity, but they're working in more of a harmonious way with other people. There's, there's, you want to know who your neighbors are. You want to know the strengths they have, and you want to share an extent, a, a loosely connected community concept. A concept. Mm-hmm. I, you know, um, where I live, we still have town meeting government, and that's one of the most useful uh, experiments that there is in the world. Uh, uh, to have to come together once a year, at least, and make the decision about how your community is going to run. We've gotten out of, uh, you know, gotten out of practice. Uh, we can't do the things that people throughout history have been able to figure out how to do. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago in this country, if you wanted to farm, you had to, among other things, know how to be a good neighbor because you had to get. There was no way to do it without getting neighbors to agree to come by and, uh, you know, help build your barn in the first place. Or, you know, everybody harvested their crops more or less cooperatively, rotating from place to place. Um, We've become extreme hyper-individuals in our society, uh, and we've counted that as nothing but blessing. But in fact, it comes at a very high cost. 